Um, turn, if you will, to Matthew, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to keep talking today about the kingdom of God and a series that we started uh, last week. And we're going to talk about Matthew 5 through 7. And some of you know what that is. That is a very famous, that, famous sermon that Jesus preached, which we usually call the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at that for the next few weeks, uh, at least. And I, I want to ask you, I'm looking at, at the age of the people here, trying to figure out how many of you are going to raise your hand. But how many of you remember the old schoolhouse rock videos they used to play between the Saturday morning cartoons in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. I know it's kind of a little window, right? It's about a 20 or 30 year window of people. That used to, do you remember conjunction, junction? What's your function? Remember uh, three is a magic number? How many of you remember the preamble to the Constitution of the United States? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, right? provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America, right? You know it. Now, that only proves how many cartoons I watched when I was, when I was a kid, all right? But we learned, we learned that. I hope the kids learn it today. I somehow doubt that they know it, but we need to bring some of this stuff back. But I bring this up for a reason. The preamble to the Constitution, those first few lines, are there, that's there for a reason. It is there to show us uh, what, basically to give us the, the, the values and the goals of the whole document, right? So in the preamble, we find out what the framers are trying to do. What are they trying to get at? What, what is important to them, and what do we hope to achieve by having a constitution? And as it does that, it reflects the values and the priorities of the people that designed it, the American founders who put the document together. What was important to them? We just sort of sang about it, right? Unity, <clears throat> justice, peace, uh, an adequate national defense, the well-being of the populace, lasting liberty. These are things they were aiming for. These are the values that underlie the body of the rest of the Constitution, the whole document. Now, I want you to hang on to this idea. I promise we are not talking about government again today, all right? So don't, you don't need to worry about that. But hang on to the idea of a Constitution, because I want to, to suggest to you that when you get to Matthew chapter 5 through 7, this famous sermon by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, we have the closest thing in the New Testament to what you would call a Constitution for the kingdom of God. A constitution for the kingdom of God. What is happening is, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, after we get done with the birth story and then the genealogies and, and, and the temptation and all that stuff that happens at the beginning, Jesus begins his public ministry. And he's going around and he's declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Everybody knows that Jesus has brought something called the kingdom of God. And then in in the end, about the end of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus does a flurry of miracles. And he is showing people that he has the authority and he has the power, and this kingdom is coming in power, and that he is in fact the king. And it's his authority and his power. <clears throat> and as he does this, he attracts a bunch of people. He's got a, a, a small core of committed followers. He's got a big crowd of very interested onlookers who follow him around, and by now he's got more than his share of detractors, of critics who are going around um, trying to give him a hard time. So all these people are following Jesus around, and what he does at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 is he now goes up on a mountain. And Matthew makes a big deal out of this um, because it's very important that he goes up on a mountain. 
Because do you remember what happened in Exodus 19 and 20 when, when the Israelites way back then got the, got the first constitution, got the Ten Commandments, the constitution really for their nation? They were around a mountain, and God came down to that mountain and gave them laws. And now Jesus goes to a mountain, and he sits down, and in this sermon, first of all, he's not, we're not going to go over the whole sermon today. I'm going to have you look at it for next week, actually. But Jesus harkens back to a lot of these Old Testament commandments, especially the Ten Commandments. But as he does so, he also gives his people really a new set of laws, a new set of kingdom laws. He is giving them principles. He's laying down this set of principles that are going to govern how his people are supposed to live kingdom lives in his kingdom. Remember how we defined the kingdom of God last week? If you weren't here, you're going to hear it now. The kingdom of God is God's rule in God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people in God's place. We talked a lot last week about how to become God's people. But Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is going to spell out how God's rule is to be made real in the lives of of God's people. So that's one of the questions I want you to start thinking about today when it comes to your own life. How, is, how are the principles and, if you will, the rules of God's kingdom being applied in my life? How is it making a difference for me? Can I really call myself a kingdom person if I look at my life? Are the principles of the kingdom active in the way that I live? And if you, don't, if, if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mount, and even if you haven't read it, you've heard some of it. Because it's got a lot of very famous passages and very famous words in it, some very beautiful words, and we like to use them all the time. This is where Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone forces you to to go a mile, go the extra mile. This is where uh, the Lord's Prayer is in the Gospel of Matthew. A lot of really good stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you know anything else about the Sermon on the Mount, you know that, that if you put it all together, the whole sermon, and look at it as a whole, it is rather terrifying. Because you look at it and you're like, how am I supposed to do this? It's impossible. Because Jesus is not just aiming at our behavior and what our lives look like on the outside. He's looking at our hearts. He's saying things like, look, don't just be content with not murdering people. You shouldn't even be murdering them in your minds and with your lips. You shouldn't even be speaking hateful words or dismissive words against people. He says, don't be content with just not committing adultery, but look in your heart. Look for the lust that's in your heart, because that's also adultery. At one point in this sermon, Jesus actually says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if that isn't hard enough, he also says at one point, don't worry. Ever put that one into practice? How in the world, right? How can we do all these things? And so what has happened is a lot of people have kind of dismiss the Sermon on the Mount. They've said, well, what this is, is it is a, an, a, an ideal picture of the ideal disciple, and we're going to kind of hang it up in our living rooms as an inspiration, but we know we're not really going to get there. We're really not supposed to try to follow it because it's, it's just so holy, and so uh, just it's out there. Or, or other people have said, well, the Sermon on the Mount is real, but what it really is is the principles that are going to be in place in Jesus' final kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, when God is ruling on earth and, and we're living in his kingdom. That's how people will live. And so we need to see this now as an inspiration um, you know, for then. Well, at this point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us on a very, very brief 
side trip, a little diversion. It's going to be very brief because I think you all pretty much agree with me on this, so I don't need to do a lot of convincing, but I do want to ask a question and we need to answer it. The question is, when is the kingdom of God? When is the kingdom of God? When does it happen? When is it here? Very important question. Jesus has been criticized. He has been ridiculed sometimes. He has been dismissed by a lot of people because what they will say is that Jesus was wrong about the timing of the kingdom. When I was in English class in public school, senior year English, we actually looked at the Gospel of Matthew, and I was taught that although Jesus was a really good teacher, that he was mistaken about his kingdom or God's kingdom. Because he came in and he was saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. It's about to happen. And yet Jesus at the end of the day was crucified and the kingdom never came. So that's why he wasn't who he says he was. I was taught that in English class. And, you know, if, if I had been a little bit more biblically literate back in 12th grade, I might have been able to answer that, but I wasn't. I don't know if I would have had the courage or not. But now I know this, and hopefully you know it too, and, and if not, I'm going to tell you right now, and you can confirm it for yourself, that any honest reading of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will show you very clearly that when Jesus talked about the timing of his kingdom, he deliberately talked about two different things. And he knew exactly what he was saying. Yes, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. He said to, to, to his detractors one time, the kingdom of God is among you. And the, ki the kingdom was here. Why? Because the king was here. When he came, the kingdom was here. Now here's the question. Is the kingdom still here in 2021? Newsflash, it is. And it's because Jesus, the King, is still here. He is here indwelling His people through the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom is still here, yes, even today. However, Jesus also talked about the kingdom as something being final and in the future, and in our future too. Last week we had communion. And I think I remember quoting to you the verse that says that Jesus, He said He would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until He, he enjoyed it anew again with His disciples in His Father's kingdom out in the future. And Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot like that, like it was in the future. So it's a, it's a both and kind of answer. The kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not complete. The kingdom is here. It is present, but it is not present in all of its fullness. And so, getting back to the Sermon on the Mount, when we look at these words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have to ask, when is Jesus expecting these things to take place? When does he expect us to obey this? What, what is this sermon for? Is it for today, or is it for like the future, and it's just an ideal for us now? <clears throat> well, I think it's obvious from the words of the sermon itself, it's for today. Amen. It's for you and me. It's for us now. For instance, when you get to the millennial kingdom and God is ruling on earth and it's a paradise, how many people are going to be forcing you to walk a mile or persecuting you or slapping you in the face? Probably nobody. So that's stuff that's happening here and now. And Jesus, when he gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't let us off the hook either. He says, the people who hear my words that I'm speaking now and obey them are the ones who are building their life on a solid foundation. Those are the kingdom people. But those who hear my words and do not obey them are like people that are building a house on a foundation of sand. So, so Jesus clearly expects us to take his words in the Sermon on the Mount seriously for us today. But again, that drives us to begin to wonder, how are we supposed to do that? How can we ever even begin to obey the things that we find in this sermon? Well, let me go ahead 
And I'm going to read you just the first 10 verses of Matthew 5. We'll look at those this morning. This section kind of stands on its own. And some of you, most of you probably know this, but I will tell you that this section of Scripture is usually called the Beatitudes. And I'm going to use that phrase a few times today, the Beatitudes. And that's because that comes from a word that, that, that has the idea of being blessed, being blessed. And as you hear it read, I want you to think of this as really the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how Jesus starts. Matthew 5, right in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, very formal language, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to stop there for now. But I want to look at these words on three different levels today. And here's level one. As I said, I want you to recognize that just as we had a preamble to our Constitution, here we have a declaration of values. This is the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the declaration of values that underlie all the laws that Jesus is about to lay down. The things that Jesus calls us to do as his kingdom people in the rest of this sermon make no sense unless we are first convinced of the truth of what he is saying in these 10 verses. You cannot turn the other cheek when you're insulted. You cannot forgive people that viciously harm you. You cannot conquer worry until you believe the words that we just read. I look back at, at I, I actually preached a, ser- a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount about 15 years ago here at First Alliance. It was as longer than it'll be this time. It was about 20 weeks or so back then. And I saw that I called the series Doing the Impossible. And I don't think I said this in these words back then, but I'm going to say it now. You cannot do the impossible until you believe the incredible. You cannot do the impossible until you believe something that sounds incredible. And these words that we just read are pretty incredible. They're hard to believe because they are, as I pointed out last week, they are diametrically opposed to the values that this world hammers into us over and over and over again on a daily basis. And again, these are called beatitudes because Jesus defines these values in terms of blessing. Who are the people who are blessed? Now, according to the world's definition of what it means to be blessed, who is the most blessed person on the face of the earth today? I had an idea that I wanted to run by you. Because after last Sunday night's game, I thought maybe some of you would think of this guy. We're going to show a picture of him. There he is. TB12, right? Tom Brady. Is he not blessed? Right? I mean, he's, here's a guy who is 43 years old, but his body thinks it's 28, right? He's rich. He's famous. He's good looking. He's intelligent. He's successful. He's at the, literally at the top of his profession. He's married to a supermodel. He's living in Florida with kids that seem to adore him. And by the way, two parents that care about him a lot because they, they were interviewing his parents while he was celebrating up there for the Super Bowl. And they said, what do you think of your son's game? And they said, he needs to put his mask on. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. 
But, but as you read, as we just did, Jesus' description of a blessed person, it seems to have basically nothing to do with what we just said about Tom Brady, right? And I'm not picking on Tom Brady. I grew up in New England. I went to Tom's school for a year. So I've been rooting for him his whole career. And, and my wife is from Tampa, so now I have to keep rooting for him. But I want you to think about how this man embodies what we might call the world's beatitudes, right? Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the successful. Blessed are the self-confident. Blessed are the people who have found out what they're supposed to do in life, and they they found out what they do well, and they do it, and who, who know what they want out of life, and they go out, and they seize it, and they receive it. That's what we define today mostly as being blessed. And Jesus, to hear his words that we just read here from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, must be living on an entirely different planet, right? Because his definition of the word blessed is very weird. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty, persecuted. What are these words? And you know what about some of the other ones? If you set out to show mercy to people, and if you set out to make peace between people, you know what almost always happens to you? You get hurt. You get misunderstood. So these are costly values. And yet I think we can see how if, if we embrace these things, if we really did, then if we no longer put a priority on, on some of the world standards of success, like being rich or being successful or being... being um, you know, famous or, or, or driven to protect our own rights or our own reputation. And if we get away from those things, then maybe we will be free to live in a different way. Maybe we'll be free to live for others instead of living for ourselves. Maybe we'll be free to give sacrificially. Maybe we'll be free to forgive people when it's really costly. Maybe we'll be free to stand up for truth even if at some point we're going to be mistreated for it. Maybe we'll be free to not rush to judgment on people, to pray for people who have hurt us instead of trying to to scheme about how to get them back, and maybe even freed ultimately from the kind of stress and anxiety that probably even plagues people like Tom Brady from time to time. So yes, we need to see this passage at that level. In order to do the things that Jesus tells us to do in this sermon, we need to believe these statements and to embrace these very countercultural values or we have no chance. But there's another reason that these Beatitudes are important, and it's this. It's because they set us up for what we really need in life, which is not worldly success. What we really need in life, first and foremost, is God's mercy and God's grace. We absolutely need those things, otherwise we are lost forever in sin. Think about it. Who are the poor in spirit? We talked about that a little bit last week. The poor in spirit are those who look inside of themselves for things like goodness and righteousness, or even look inside of themselves for you know, the answers to life's big questions or if, to see if I've got what it takes. And when they do that, they come up empty. There's a space there. And this sets them up to receive what Jesus is offering them, which is forgiveness and a new life. Things that people obsessed with worldly success don't have room for. And so because of that, the poor in spirit, although they don't look very blessed, Jesus says they're blessed. Who are the people that mourn? 
Is it just the people who have lost someone close to them recently and are mourning because, like at a funeral? Well, the word is kind of like that, but, but everybody goes through that from time to time, right? Jesus is saying something else here. Because these sayings are more about attitude and mindset than about situations we're in. So, and, and all the commentators agree that this is someone who is mourning over sin. Mourning over their own sin. And I, I'd put it this way. Mourning over the dead places in your own heart. Looking at your life very carefully and saying, oh, am I really that man? Could I really have, do I really think like that? Do I, is that really me? And there's there's an emptiness in your heart, almost feels like you're mourning when you really come into contact with that. But Jesus says that when that happens, you're blessed. Why? Because He's ready to comfort you by bringing the dead parts of your life back to life. Who are the meek? Is it the people that grovel and whimper and let people walk all over them? Is that what it means to be meek? If you think about it, the the opposite of poor in spirit is probably high self-esteem without Jesus. The opposite of mourning is probably being self-satisfied. The opposite of meekness is not strength, it's self-reliance with a capital S-E-L-F. It is the people who look to themselves for the ultimate solutions and the ultimate answers to life's challenges. And so because of that, they must protect their reputation and their positive self-image no matter what. Those are very important things. So they can't afford to be meek. Can't afford to yield to others because to do that and to make myself look bad or to let someone else go first or to get the better of me, that's too risky. I can't risk that. But meek people are secure enough that they're able to yield Just like if you're a secure driver and you're not in that much of a hurry, you'll let someone get off the exit before you. You'll yield. The blessed people are the ones who, because of a spirit of meekness, are then ready to put their ultimate trust in somebody else, in Jesus, and to receive His power for a living through His Holy Spirit. Of course, going on, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can probably guess that's the opposite of self-righteousness, which isn't even a thing, really. You recognize the empty places in your heart that come from how you used to hunger and thirst for all sorts of other things, but Jesus has put a new hunger and thirst in your heart. We could go on, but in all these sayings, Jesus is describing either people who are aware of their brokenness and know that they need Him, or people who are willing to pay a price in their relationships for the sake of mercy and truth and love and peace. Such people, Jesus says, are blessed because they have been set free to seek the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of self. Another big question to ask yourself today, what kingdom am I seeking? Am I I seeking the things that are the values of the kingdom of God or am I seeking those things that are really values in what I might call the kingdom of self and kind of building my own kingdom and my own empire? Is this reflected in the choices that you make, the dreams that you have, the plans, the things that your mind dwells on most of the time. But, but I want to drill just one level deeper because these sayings do even more than just enable us to, to envision obeying the commands and then set us up for grace. They, they do something else too. When I was in fifth grade, so a long time ago, but I remember this, I was given an assignment that I will never forget. It was in social studies class. I had to write 
a paper on the life of George Washington, but I had to write it on, I had to write it in the shape of his head. Um, so we were all given like poster board that was like, like, a, like 18 inches by 18 inches in the shape of the profile of either Lincoln or Washington's head, and I got Washington, so I had to write his biography in his head, literally. And so um, now, the, the reason I remember this isn't because of the assignment, it's because of how hard it was to get the assignment into school the day that it was due. I had stayed up all night procrastinating, of course, like I usually did, and my mom had helped me a lot because I was not a neat person, but to fit all this stuff in George Washington's head, you had to be neat and write, you know, have straight lines and everything. So mom made sure that happened. She stayed up late with me. And we got up the next day. It's President's Day in Massachusetts, so you can imagine what the weather's like. So we look outside. It's a horrible ice storm. And... Um, and they didn't cancel school because in Massachusetts back then you didn't cancel school unless it was like a blizzard. And so there was no, they didn't cancel school. So I'm looking out at the window and I'm like, Mom, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to school today. She goes, you're going. You're, get, you're turning that paper in. So, so she bundled me all up and she threw me in the, in the station wagon and she put on a, a ski uh, jacket over her bathrobe and she ran out in the car and, and she got the station wagon just barely out of the driveway and then she got it going down the street. I lived about maybe three quarters of a mile from school. She got to the end of, the, of our street and she couldn't go any further. The wheels were spinning. The wipers stopped because the ice was coming down so hard on the windshield and she was stuck and I'm like, Mom, what are you going to do? And she looks at me and she goes, Paul, you're going to have to run for it. So um, I, I still was about 500 yards from school and so uh, I took George Washington's head which you can't fold or anything, you know. So I shoved it up in my ski jacket and I ran to school like that as fast as I could for like the last 500 yards over a slick sidewalk with all sorts of wintry mix coming out of the sky. Uh, I think I got there in time and I'm pretty sure I got an A um, to go along with my case of pneumonia that I got that day, you know. But that, that's why, that's a lot of oversharing, I guess. But that's why I remember this assignment so well. But now that I look back on it, it's kind of cool to think about. I was filling in the details of the man's life and in doing that, I was filling out a profile of the man himself. Now, I, w- I want you to think about the Sermon on the Mount that way. The constitution of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, is really a profile of the king himself. It's Jesus there. The, the life that, that, that is called for in this sermon is none other than the life that Jesus himself lived out perfectly. And so as we obey these commands, as we observe this, this sermon that he, that, he, that he preaches, we're kind of filling in the details of Jesus. And, and as we do this, we're filling out the profile of his life. We're declaring to a watching world not only what he has called us to do, but we're declaring who he is, not just his commandments, but his character. This sermon is who Jesus is. Our lives should be filling in for people a picture of Jesus. But that's not all, because Jesus doesn't just embody the commandments that are later on in the sermon, it's also true of the, of the preamble too, the Beatitudes that we read in those first ten verses. I'm going to read you, as you think about these qualities, look down at your page if you want, just look at, at what Jesus says is a blessing. Look at poor in spirit, mourning, meek, merciful, peacemaking. And let me read you some verses from the Old Testament. And this is a prophecy about Jesus from the book of Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. These verses were written over 700 years before Jesus even hit the scene. And as you can probably tell, they're about his death. That day, did he become poor? Yeah, he gave up everything. He, he, was stri- he had everything taken away from him. His glory, his majesty, his beauty. And eventually, even all of his clothes were stripped off of him, and then they were divided up and given to others. Did he mourn? He was a man of sorrows, Isaiah says, acquainted with grief. In fact, not just that day, but you might even remember Palm Sunday, that big day of celebration when Jesus came into town riding the donkey and everybody's yelling, Hosanna. What is he doing? He's crying. He's mourning over the sins of his people and what that's going to do to them later on. Was he meek? Didn't open up his mouth to defend himself. Was he merciful? Forgive them, Father. Did he make peace? The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And you know what the crazy thing is? Jesus, in his death, demonstrated all these qualities and values that we see in the Beatitudes, but all the benefits, the second half of all the verses, that all went to others. The righteousness that he not only hungered for, but actually achieved, he ended up giving it to us. He was merciful, but he got no mercy from the crowds. We ended up getting the mercy, just like we got the peace that he bought with his own body. Even even though his purity of heart should have allowed him to see God the Father, when he actually looked up to God that day, God actually turned his back. Why? So that one day we could get to see God. See, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is a profile of the life of Jesus, but you know what we have here in the Beatitudes? We have a profile of his death. And that is appropriate because before you can do anything to live out a kingdom life, first you need to encounter the dying king because he died for you so that you could receive all the things that he lost that day. And then once we do receive these things in faith, we are set free to consider the rest of this sermon and to find out what it looks like to live a kingdom life. You see, in the final analysis, obeying the Sermon on the Mount was never a way to earn your salvation. Obeying the Sermon on the Mount is not a way to become a kingdom person. It's the other way around. The Sermon on the Mount is how we are called to live and empowered to live once we have entered the kingdom by the blood of the king and once we have received the king's spirit in dwelling in us. Let me encourage you over the next week 
to, to just read through this sermon a few times. Let, let it sink in in all of its terrible holiness, you know. But don't skip the Beatitudes. Maybe even read those a few extra times because that, that statement of kingdom values is also a profile of the king's life and in this case, a profile of his death. Allow that to remind you of what Jesus has done for you, what he's given for you, because that's what enables you to come into the kingdom and to be a kingdom person in the first place. Let's pray.